0: Welcome to The Book Hub, an online event space hosted by Luther Seminary.
1: Hello and welcome to this month's Faith Lead Book Hub, Setting the Table for Community, with authors and pastors Elizabeth McGill and Melanie Heiser-Hill, and seminary professor Anna Marsh. I am your host on behalf of Faith Lead, Leanne Pomerinke. During this month on the Faith Leader blog and in the Learning Lab, we are focused on the theme of faith and food, emphasizing that food is never just food alone or bread alone as Jesus responds to a temptation, but always also about health, community, memories, social cohesion, and so many other things, including faith. I will introduce the first of our panelists. Uh, We are joined today by the Reverend Dr. Elizabeth McGill, a Disciples of Christ pastor, the founder of an outdoor church reaching adults without homes, and author of Five Loaves, Two Fish, 12 Volunteers Growing Relational Food Ministries. Liz, would you share some of the convictions that guide your ministry? related to food and faith?
0: Yes, I'd love to do that. I will say um, that after I wrote this book, I got invited to an event and um, they, when I asked them about the food plan, it turned out they thought that I was going to cook. They thought that what I knew about meal programs and food pantries was about cooking. I do not cook at home. My husband does all the cooking. Uh, I got into this question, not about um, food, but about how we get food to people and how we use food to create relationships. Um, And the most important thing that I want people to go away with is that the way we create belonging, the way we create church, is to invite people to join in the work Uh, that we do. And there is a model of food pantries and a model of uh, meal programs where those of us who have plenty do the giving and the people who have little do the receiving. And I was looking for churches that did ministry differently than that. And I found nine churches to visit where the people who don't have enough food Um, were integral in their food ministry program. They were the volunteers. In some cases, they were the directors. They, um, They made the food ministry happen. And at all of those churches, when I interviewed people who were the volunteers, I discovered that every person believed they were a member of that church that they were volunteering for. Whether or not the church knew that they were members they were they believed that they were a part of that church um and then and then the third point that i end up make so i i make have three sections how to build relationships how to invite people to be the volunteers to be the leaders and the chaos that comes from that my discovery was that when you do that you end up creating church not that your food ministry is a mission of Sunday's ministry, but rather that your food ministry, your pantry or your meal uh, becomes actually the thing that is church. That when people are gathering, that is a worship experience. Um, so my book is five loaves, two fish, 12 volunteers. And. Um, this was, uh, the title came from someone who was in a writing class with me, this idea of 12, uh, Jesus did not feed the 5,000 by himself. He had 12 hungry people help him to be the distributors um, of food. Uh, So that that is what I am bringing to this discussion about community and food, is that the community part is the most important part for churches to engage in.
1: Amen and amen. All right, thank you. Um, Next, I'd like to introduce Pastor Melanie Heiser-Hill. She's a Lutheran pastor and children's book author. She has written both a novel and the picture book that we are featuring today, which is called Around the Table That Granddad Built. Melanie, would you share with us some of your convictions about faith and food and how that shows up in your work?
2: This is my picture book around the table uh, that granddad built. And I wanna start by telling you the story of how this book came to be. Um, My parents' property was hit in 2009 by a tornado. They were safe. Their house even was safe. But their property, which was heavily wooded, had a lot of damage. And it was just sort of one of those things where you can't catch your breath looking at these massive trees that have gone down. My parents decided they wanted to take um, some of that Uh, destruction and make something beautiful of it. And so they hired a guy with a planer and he came out and planed some of the larger trees. And my dad built a table that is 23 feet long, (laughs) of rough hewn wood that sits as a table out in their backyard um, by their brick oven, pizza oven. Um, He made benches out of the cherry tree that was a little bit narrower. Um, and this table is gorgeous. If you look at my website, you can see you can see the table. Um, it's just really beautiful. And now that we are 15, 16 people in our family, when we all are together, there's plenty of room at this table. So that was sort of percolating in my mind when I wrote this book. The grandchildren call my my dad Granddad, um, and they call my mom Gran. And so I wanted to tell the story of people coming together for a meal from a child's point of view. And so it begins, this is the table that granddad built and then like the house that jack built we layer things on and so we layer the napkins sewn by mom and the sunflowers picked by our cousins and the plates red orange and yellow and the glasses from mom and dad's wedding and the silverware from dad's grandma long ago on and on this table gets set by the children with helpful adult hands (laughs) around them getting uh things straight and then um Then the food comes and it's a wide variety of foods. Uh, When I first wrote this book. um, It was a Thanksgiving book, and I had a number of librarians say, if you write this as a Thanksgiving book, it has an American audience and it's brought out once a year in the library and the bookstores. And so we broadened it a little bit. I made the I, the cakes. I had cakes originally. There's still pies in there. There's no turkey on this table. It's entirely a vegetarian meal, in fact and it's a meal that like kids would put together it just makes no sense there's there's tamales and there's roasted potatoes and there's the squash that, you know from the garden and there's the bread that grand baked and there's the huckleberry jam and you know things like kids would put together a meal at this table which is what this book is about it's about the beauty of setting a table it's about the food that goes around that table and it's about the gathering that comes around the table and the stories that are told you know, what stories are told about mom and dad's wedding as we lift the glasses? What stories are told about dad's grandma as we use the, the precious silverware um, from generations ago? Um, so that's, you know, a lot of that is done in the pictures. It's a picture book. It's a spare book. I think there's 238 words. Um, Jamie Kim, who's the illustrator, filled in those details um, with her just glorious, uh, glorious illustrations. But it's about a celebration, you know, whatever that is. There are family and friends coming together, and they're bringing all these foods, and the table is set with all the finery, um, and they're gathering together. And I, I'll just give away the end. They hold hands, and they have a they have a blessing at the end around the table that Granddad built. Um, So this is the story that I wanted to tell. I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of research about the importance of families gathering around uh, the table, supper table, um, and how good that is for kids and how the good that is for the family. Um, And I just sort of wanted to look at it from a kid's point of view um, and, and show the specialness of what that is. All that hard work, that the grandparents do, that the parents do to get a meal on the table and the kids patiently folding the napkins um, and setting it all up so that all their friends and family um, can gather. Um, so I guess I would say what I what I think about in terms of a table, whether it be the altar table at church or whether it be the kitchen table at home is what what is the beauty that is brought together around the table. How are we nourished by that beauty, by that community, and by the food um, that is there, so.
1: I feel like we could tweet that. What is the beauty that is there around the table? (laughs) Well, we already have some themes emerging here, and I think we're probably going to build on them. Our third panelist today is Dr. Anna Marsh. She is a Visiting Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary, and her work centers on gender and food as overlapping concerns. Of <laughs> course, this January on, is this the right title, Food in the Bible?
3: Oh, it's called Food, Culture, and Justice in the Biblical Tradition. (laughs) Way better.
1: Wow. Anna, tell us what are some of your primary concerns when we talk
3: about food? Great. So I'm so happy to be there, to be here. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, I wrote my dissertation on. Um, as Leanne said, I wrote my dissertation on food and gender in the Hebrew Bible. And then, um, I teach this course here at Luther on food in the biblical tradition, but my interest in this, it has become like a really broad topic, but my interest in this began with a very simple question, which is like, have y'all ever noticed how much food shows up in the Bible? <laughs> um, so by one estimate, um, on every three pages of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, people eat or drink four times. So just like just like it is for us, food in the ancient world was really central to identity and family life and gender roles and cultural heritage and then artistic expression as well. And so it shows up in biblical stories, which is interesting in and of itself. But then it also raises a whole host of theological questions. So what does this enormous emphasis on food say about human beings and human beings in relationship with God and, and one another? And so from there, then I think we can start to think about how a just relationship with food can become one of the ways that we respond to all of God's gracious gifts. And food really touches almost every aspect of our lives when we start to think about it. And so what I really love doing is inviting readers of biblical stories to think about how the things we see in biblical narratives are actually reflective of their own relationship with food, whether that's as an individual or in your family or as a member of a community, and then how those dynamics might still be present in our broader contemporary culture as well. I will confess that I have a hunch, which is that while um, the ways that our food gets to our plate are, is very are you know kind of vastly different than people in the ancient world, we relate to food in many of the same ways as people did back then. And so looking at the Bible through the lens of food helps us notice things in the stories that we didn't realize were there. So not only is it a great way to like learn about the ancient world, to give us deep theological questions that we can interact with on a daily basis. I mean, at least like three times daily, right. You can think like, like you can think about all of these things that, that um, food communicates to us or that we use, you know, like we communicate, that we use to communicate to one another and that we learn about God from it. But it also of course provides a foothold for thinking more critically or more reflectively about our own relationships with food. Um, And I think, you know, it just kind of like helps the Bible come alive in a new way. And so, um, yeah, I just, I really, I thought it would start, I started out as like, it started out as a simple question and I just, I can't find the end of it, you know, like I, it's just, it just keeps unfolding new avenues for, um, for inquiry and discussion and reflection. And so.
1: Let's each think of and talk a little bit about a biblical story with food that holds meaning for you. Anna, we're going to turn right, right around, <laughs> and right, you may start, and then it will be uh, Melanie's turn.
3: Okay, so mine might be a little bit different than what many people expect, but um, one of my favorite biblical stories about food is the story of Hannah in First Samuel one and two. So. Um, I really, I like this idea that food is showing up in all kinds of ways that we don't notice when we first read a story. And so, you know, I think about like the way that, um, like it's like, uh, so think about like Hannah in the beginning of her story, she has, we know what we know about her is that she has not been able to have children yet and she really wants children and, um, Other people in her family are sort of mocking her for this or not understanding why this is such a desperate moment for her, and um, when they gather for a celebratory meal during their yearly pilgrimage she doesn't eat with them. And so she makes this decision to Um, not participate in this meal. And so I think her, her choice to not eat sends a message that, or kind of reinforces this message that she's unhappy and um, food becomes a way that she can express that without even articulating it. And so that's like, just so interesting to me. Um, One of the other ways that we, that I think we know this is what she is doing is that as soon as the priest Eli gives her a promise, like you will have a child, the first thing she does is go and rejoin her family and eat with them. Uh, (laughs) And then, um, and then when she does go home from that journey and, and is able to um, get pregnant and have a baby, uh, she then like, we see like this very kind of for odd for biblical narrative, but like a very vivid, like, scene of her breastfeeding, like her body is becoming food. She's like turning her body into food for her baby. And then, and then saying like, I'm going to stay back. We're going to stay back. As far as we can tell, it seems like she kind of waits a really long time to wean her baby. Um, and so she's kind of all of these things, she's making all of these decisions that kind of show that food is a way that she has agency. Um, even when she can't, um, (laughs) even when she can't uh like articulate that or doesn't articulate that so whether she's not eating or she's eating or she's feeding we see her using food to like express herself in all kinds of ways and i just think that's so cool
1: now we're going to turn to melanie what what does it for you what holds special meaning
2: the variations on the feeding of the thousands um I just, I'm fascinated by the variations and I love this idea of leftovers. You know, and we see that in other stories too. Um, Elisha, we just did this story in church the other day Elisha and a man who comes with his 20 loaves, and Elisha says, you know there's going to be leftovers he's like how could there be leftovers and there's leftovers I think I like leftovers I guess that's (laughs) the stories and the feeding of the thousands you know however many thousands that is on this what looks like a small amount of food but we know how to do that right those of us who uh cook and bake and cut brownies and things you know how to expand things and make it work for whoever shows up. And I feel like there's a, there's a theological claim to that, that is, there's, there's more than enough. um, And we're ready for whoever is going to come. Um, And I think that's important. We live in, we live in a society that has scarcity as, as a way of thinking so much of the time. And I, it feels like the leftovers part of these stories encourages us to look, uh, look at something larger than that um, and look at abundance. There's always going to be leftovers.
1: All right, Liz, it's your turn. All right. What story stands out for you?
2: So
0: I want to talk about the story in Acts six one to seven. This is the story of um, widows arguing with each uh, arguing with each other and with the community about something. And I want to say related to Anna's research, um, male. Biblical commentators have all described this text as basically a way to make Stephen appear in the Bible. That at the end of the conflict, they appoint seven people, and Stephen is one of the seven. And then the next stories are that he are he's um, martyred. So this story, according to um, traditional reading, is just this this anchor this um, way to turn the story. Um, But if we're paying attention to food and if we're paying attention to women, then maybe it's significant that there's this little argument between two groups of women about the food. Um, And research by Rita Haltman Finger has shown um, that our standard reading, which is that um, the women are hungry and they're not getting their fair share. so. I'm talking about meal programs. Here's the first meal program. And people are afraid are are reading this story with a 20th century eyes, which is that not everybody's getting their fair share when they go through the line at the buffet. Um, But what Finger has shown is number one, the whole idea of a table you go to to get um, food when you're poor does not exist yet at this time. And she also suggests that in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where the disciples say that they're sharing everything in common, that there isn't an example of wealthy people giving to poor people because nobody who's in the community is wealthy anymore. They've given all, everything they have to the community. The other stereotype we have is that widows are poor, even though we know that most of Jesus' ministry was funded by wealthy widows. Um, So if you get rid of the way we're used to reading this story, you can see that it is quite possible that what the widows were complaining about is whose turn it was to serve dinner. Uh, And I would say that this fits with Melanie's book, that the way you get kids involved in a meal is you give them a turn to do some of the work. Everybody gets a job to do. Um, And uh, interestingly, people, non-U.S. readers of this text have all interpreted it to be about cultural difference. There are the Hellenistic widows and the, um, I forgot the other term of the widows from the Holy Lands. Um, So that, that there's cultural conflict and that the answer to the cultural conflict is to let the people who are the less powerful, the less in charge, be in charge of their own, um, of their own way of, of being involved in the meal. And then Elizabeth Schusser Fiorenza goes so far as to say that what they're arguing about is their turn to serve the Eucharist. Um, are they getting a turn to be at the table, not just a table, um, which you might remember, but in the first century, there wasn't the table and a table, there, the meal was the Eucharist, so, so that fits um, that idea that this story is about what the argument that I'm making? I guess all of us can read scripture to make it say what we want it to say, but it's making the argument that I'm making, which is that people want to be included in the serving; they want to be included in the work. Um, and so I love this story um, about um, about sharing food, but also about sharing the work to set the table. To set grandfather's table.
2: That reminds me of a sermon um, that I once heard Barbara Lundblad preach, uh, that talked about the story that I talked about, the feeding of the thousands, where she says the way that worked was all the women looked in their diaper bags and their strollers and found the found the extra crackers crackers and the fruit snacks and passed them around. You know that it took, in fact everybody to make this miracle, uh, happen, which I also is a nice, uh, I love that. I, I keep saying in places that I think we will have missed something out of the COVID time. If we don't make the link between the altar table and the kitchen table, Um, you know, for those months when we were worshiping online and whatnot, I was encouraging families to make, make their kitchen table, their altar um, and make that link explicitly for the kids. Cause I think we've we've lost that, um, having, those, having those be the same things.
1: Okay, well, let's move on to another question. Um, feeding people has been part of the Christian community since its beginning. You have all said that. Uh, what are some of the ways that we have approached food and faith as churches? that you're glad we are leaving behind? Or what are some practices that you definitely want to hold on to?
2: Something that I think the pandemic again has shown us is that eating together and fellowship is really important for a community. Um, and so I hope, you know, as we can safely um, negotiate all the things we need to negotiate these days, I hope that that coming together for potlucks um, and things like that remains a part of how we are church. Um, I'd like to see that expand so that it's not just a, a community that is already defined, but so that the doors are open to invite others to come because. Again, abundance. There's always going to be enough. Um, But I I've been, I guess, a little surprised, even though I'm a person who loves setting a table um, and eating with people, how how much we've lost not being able to do that the last couple of years and the joy that is found in that coming back. Um, So I think that would be that's an important thing to think about as we go forward. How can we how can we gather around a table? and enjoy ourselves,
0: yeah. So Melanie's words make me want to throw out what the little thing I've written here and tell you about Saint um, Saint Paul's Cathedral in Boston. When COVID hit, they were having a lunch program um, every Monday that fed a hundred people. And when COVID hit, the law was first that you could only have fifty people in a room and then later became as low as 25 people in a room. This was already a program that was um, all the food distribution was run by people who did not have homes. They are the leadership team. They do all of the distributing. Indoor church, churches that have buildings are the ones that cook the meal. So when COVID came, the the indoor churches brought uh, food but they didn't stay, they used to stay. Uh, But St. Paul's Cathedral did an amazing thing that I don't know that every church would be willing to do. They had just renovated uh, very expensively their sanctuary, took out the pews so it had seats um, and just a gorgeous um, labyrinth on the floor. And they opened their fellowship hall their downstairs where the meal was and their sanctuary so that there could be three rooms with about 30 people each in them to continue to offer the meal that they were offering. And many food programs during COVID simply shut down. They were run by older people who could not take the risk to be in contact. So the St. Paul's meal program went from Monday lunch to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, I think they went Monday to Thursday and then another program picked up that was doing one day, went to Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, And they offered uh, breakfast, which they bought from restaurants that were at risk of going out of business. So they bought breakfast and then provided lunch. They did vaguely follow the rules of the state, which is that you could only have 25 people in a room, but they decided the volunteers don't count. So it was 25 people plus the volunteers and the volunteers were people who also needed to eat. So they they took their faith story that says that feeding people is important. They took their practice of saying that um, everyone is a volunteer Um, And they took um, the idea that it is okay to take risks um, when what is needed is food. And they managed to keep their food ministry going um, throughout the pandemic. And they ended up being the only, only these two food programs were the major places for people to go to get food. So I feel like that was taking our faith story and adapting to how important it is to be able to gather in community during COVID. And I agree with Melanie very much about this kitchen table uh, alter co- connection.
2: I think food is just so, uh, not food, I think gathering around a table is about more than the food. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, but I think that's one of the things we've learned during the pandemic is as we've not been able to gather around for coffee and donut holes after church um, obviously it wasn't about the coffee and the donut holes, you know? <laughs> um, so same, same thing. It wasn't just about feeding people who were literally physically hungry. It's about the community
3: coming together. I love the examples that you both raised. I think, um, I think I want to call our attention to a uh, one ancient practice, and then one kind of more contemporary idea. So ancient practice to be reminded of is the practice of gleaning, um, which is a, a, you know, agriculture is kind of this whole community effort, especially when you're in like a subsistence level economy as they were in the ancient world. But I know this, you know, this biblical law, which shows up in Leviticus twice and in Deuteronomy once, um, demonstrates an awareness that, Like Some people are left out of the social structures, right? And some people's needs are not provided for by the way that um, society is structured and the way that people's food gets to their plates. And so it falls to all of us to recognize that, to recognize who is left out and what we can do to um, provide for them. And this has of course been a guiding ethos of like lots and lots of Christian communities and Jewish communities throughout all of, throughout many millennia. Um, And I think it's still a contemporary practice in a lot of places. Like I know that in, um, that my sister and my sister-in-law and brother-in-law live in Los Angeles and they have a little app on their phone where people can say like, you can come glean from my fruit trees. And like, you can just, so she can take her kids on a walk and they can say like, oh, this, this tree, like we can take from this tree, you know, or something like, so it's just like, it's really, it's like a way for everybody to say like, yep, we have more than we need and we're willing to share. Um, so that's, you know, lovely. Um, and then just a contemporary idea that I really like and just thinking about, uh, like the practice of Christian communities and like thinking about food as a, as a gift from God. I, um, there's this book that I, I should, oh no, I do have it right here. this book by Norman Wiersba, Food and Faith, um, which I guess actually is kind of the title of this whole series, but um, it's just a wonderful book. And he does really like serious, good, careful, thorough theological reflection on this question of food. Um, I want to share two things that he raises that have just like really simple things that just totally, I think, are very helpful little kernels for us as like Christians thinking about food moving forward. And one is thinking about hosting. He says that, you know, since the microbial revolution, like we have come to realize that our, that we are always already hosts to billions of other living organisms. (laughs) Like our bodies are hosts to billions of people. So it's like in our, it's in the way we are built to host people. Right. Like God made our bodies in such a way that we um that we are that that's fundamental to who we are, which is just such a nice thing. And so you might as well just like be a good host, you know, because <laughs> you're already a host anyway. Um, so there's that. But then and I, I think that's a nice way of modeling, like, you know, how you take your values and you put those in conversation with like like an ever-growing knowledge of how the world works, right? So um, but the other thing that he says that's so lovely it's just like very simple. He says like food is God's love made nutritious and delicious. So like, because and then because of this, like we can respond to it in all kinds of ways that we can just like live our lives as eating bodies, you know, in all kinds of ways that are theologically informed. So we can be you know, we treat food as a gift and grow it responsibly and share it with others. And all of those things kind of come out of this idea that food is is an expression of God's love.
1: Next, we're gonna talk about how food can be a cultural marker around ethnicity, gender, economic class. So I invite each of you to talk about how some faith and food practices either set the table for inclusion or exclusion in biblical times or today?
0: As I was doing my research, I was overwhelmed um, with reading about the first century church and how um, what worship was this bigger thing about how you live your life, but the gathering that people had every day at the beginning um, was about dinner. And in that time, dinner was about dinner and conversation. Um, so, so what has developed into our traditional worship service today grew out of that. Uh, but boy, we made the dinner part smaller and smaller and smaller, and that and that happened quickly. That happened by about um, about in the first century, um, the groups got big enough that they couldn't gather and have a full meal. And um, actually at the beginning you came and got a hunk of bread that you ha- they actually have bags that people used to carry their bread that they picked up at church um, to carry with them during the day, to have food to eat during the day, since most people, most of what they ate was just bread. Um, And then eventually, of course, to this thing where we have a little chunk of carefully cut white bread and uh, in a nicely shaped, nicely shaped cube. But the other thing that stands out about that in the first century is how different the people were who were eating together, primarily economically. That most of the people who joined the early church were very, very poor and were slaves. But some of the people who joined were very, very rich and gave their money so that the church could be a place where very poor people and very rich people ate together. And one of the movements that I love that is happening in the church today is dinner church. Um, I love that image. I love the connection of the table to the food. Um, But I hope that we can figure out how to do that in a way that is not middle class people getting together with other middle class people, and that's the limit to what we're doing. If we could figure out how dinner church could be in the places where there isn't as much food, and yet everyone is invited to bring food and everyone is invited to help make the food Um, so one of the churches that I visited in Philadelphia has 12 women are invited from the local shelter and then three or four people from the church get together once a month and they cook the meal together. They eat together and have conversation. And then at the end of the meal, they plan the next meal, um, So this idea that we're having church together at a dinner table, but that the people who are there at the table are crossing cultural lines and um, economic lines, if we could figure out how to do that, church would really be something radically different than what happens at our family dinner table. Um, I loved Um, I think Melanie said, eating together is rejoining family. Um, Imagine one of the primary causes of homelessness is disconnection from other people, is disconnection from their own families, from the community. What if we were creating meals that created a new family, a fictive family, what what if we really were the family of God and had poor people and wealthy people and middle-class people eating together? Um, in addition to that image of plenty, that image of eating together to me creates the kingdom of God. And um, I now can't remember if I'm still connected to the question you asked, Leanne, but that—that that is what has grown out of all of what we've said um, what, including what Anna said, what is a just relationship to food, mm. a just relationship includes the fact that everyone is treated as needing of food and deserving of food and needing of family and deserving of family.
3: A quick response to what Liz said, I maybe thinking about, um, like there's that, the phrase that often goes around, especially around the holidays, right, of chosen family, Like who is your chosen family? If you're not able to travel to be with your natal family, or if that relationship is really difficult, right? Like who is your chosen family? Who are you going to share a meal with on Thanksgiving or on Christmas or on like, you know, days when everybody else is gathering with, you know, so anyway, um, so maybe church has chosen family in some way or something like that. I don't know. So, um, what I, what this question makes me think of is, um, like I said, I am really interested in the ways that. Uh, food shows up in ways like it, that it, it opens up all these questions that we don't necessarily notice right away or think that we are doing all the time. So I really kind of fixated on this idea of like the markers of gender and class and economy and things like that. And so um, I wanted to just kind of start by talking about the ways that our lives are actually marked by food in these ways. And then maybe if I have time, I'll go, I'll say a little bit more about inclusion and exclusion. So when I lead workshops on food in the Bible, or when I teach classes on this, I usually begin by presenting people with these kind of broad categories and gender and class are two of them. So, um, and then we kind of explore questions that get us into thinking about how food shapes our lives in these areas. So For class, it might include, I mean, this is just a sample, but it might include questions of food scarcity and food safety. It might include questions of food dollars and fair pay and access for people who grow your food, Um, how political and climate changes in other countries affect our food system here in the U.S. or how that ripples through our food system. Um, thinking about food relief and is it dignified and is it sustainable and is it local and global, right? I mean, um, and then with gender, like this is my favorite stuff to talk about. (laughs) So so like how is food marked by, or how is our food marked by considerations of gender? It's like the questions that come to mind for this are like, who procures your food? Who prepares and serves it? Who's responsible for feeding a family? Where do different genders have control or power or where do they get credit for their work with food? Um, Who eats first, best and most? Who suffers most when there's a famine? Who refuses or restricts food and why? What are messages that people of different genders are taught about food as they grow? Um, and how is food related to body image? How is food related to sexuality? Like there's all kinds of stuff that we can talk about here with gender. Right. So like, that's just a starting point. And I, again, I see some of these dynamics in biblical narratives as well. Um, not all of them. We, in general, I think we see very little concern for body image and food in the Bible. Um, maybe a luxury for those of us who you know our media is saturated with that kind of stuff because maybe we don't have to think about as often about you know where our next meal is coming from it's usually more a problem of too much food um, or the wrong kind of food or not act, like not having access to healthy food or something like that there's all kinds of things that go into this um to say nothing of the fact that our we are learning so much about how bodies and metabolisms work but a lot of these dynamics are present in biblical stories so people are on the move all the time in the bible because of famine right joseph's story about rising to power in egypt is about food management like shrewd food management um and then uh the bible has i think there's just like like the bible has a kind of a fraught relationship with monarchy one of the things that it says about the rise of the monarchy is that um the monarchy is going to extract goods and services, including food, from people for its own benefit. And so, like, that's just an interesting thing. And then also, like, but we also see food being a site of power and influence on a much smaller level at a household level. So, like, um, think about the story of Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. Someone mentioned the first, like, there's in Genesis 25, we see we saw Esau and Jacob kind of negotiating their birthright over a bowl of stew, right, over this this like pottage. Um, And then in two chapters later, we see Rebecca getting involved and saying like she's kind of going to manipulate the situation to make sure that Jacob gets the blessing. And she says like the whole ruse like centers on food. She says like, I'm going to make it just the way he likes it. I know how he likes it. And it's just like, there's all of these like interesting things about gender that come in there. So I don't know. Um, I can stop there. I could talk more about this. Maybe we should let Melanie go, but I could also come up, come back around and talk about inclusion and exclusion a little bit. But let's, let's hear from Melanie.
2: <laughs> well, I think we can go back to you, Anna, soon because I think what I have to say is just very simple. I think sometimes we forget to invite everybody. Um, And if we're going to use the example of kids, I mean, I wrote a book where the kids have been invited to set the table and to stir the rice pudding and to bring in the plate of squash that took over the garden. And I feel like we we often forget to invite children um, when we're trying to get something on the table and um, we forget to invite those we might say we want to join our church community for a potluck we forget to meaningfully invite them and by that I mean asking them to bring something as well. Um, just as an ask, it doesn't have to be a food thing. Um, I've had people bring in uh, uh, flowers picked, picked along the road for, you know, a centerpiece kind of thing, rocks, kids, kids often bring rocks and want to put that down as a centerpiece, you know, make something like that. We've invited them and therefore they are included in a meaningful way. Um, I saw somewhere in the comments, somebody talking about the church folks sit together and the community folks sit together. Um, That is sometimes a really hard thing to mix up. But if you invite people to bring things, sometimes that mixing, that mixing can happen in a different way. And people feel included and less self-conscious and like we've all just gathered together.
1: What are things, um, things you've done to encourage generations to interact? Either in preparing food or setting the table, um, maybe doing a TikTok with your grandma about her favorite recipe. Just what? What do you think that other people should know about?
0: I, I desperately want to speak to this, um, but I'm not. I, I what I want to say is, if you let everyone be involved, the result is chaos. That you have to let go of efficiency. You have to let go of the idea that everything should be done well. You have to let go of the idea that stuff should be done on time. Um, and those are all, I just want to say out loud, I hate every one of those things. Uh, that that's like like when Melanie said the kids bring rocks. I'm like, oh no, now somebody's gonna be worried that the rocks aren't clean. Um, but that gives you another task for some volunteer to do. Would you please take these rocks and wash them? Um, that, that my learning was that chaos uh, creates chaos is where God acts. When we think of the beginning of creation and God looks out over the chaos and creates the world, I try to remember that in our meals. Is that the more chaos we have, the more potential there is for God to do the guiding instead of me, who thinks that things need to be on time, efficient, and the fork in the right position around the plate. Um, kids are not going to follow all those rules, and people who are coming off the streets are not going to follow all of those rules. And and that's okay.
1: Right on. Okay, um, Melanie, your turn. Probably in about one or two minutes.
2: Well, I I will just uphold a thing that I did uh, with some middle schoolers this last week, and which works well for a Thanksgiving table, and that is I put down a strip of. Uh, You know, long paper on a roll, butcher block paper kind of thing down the table. And we did a sort of modified version of praying in color. You may know that book. It's doodling and praying. And I gave them markers and crayons and um, we put in the middle, God, we thank you. And then I told them that we wanted all of our prayers as we doodled to link back to that one large thing in the middle, which they heard as, all of their prayers that they're doodling here and there around the table needs to link to all the other things too. And so we had all of these interesting uh vines being drawn across the table to somebody else who was praying for their grandma. And that grandma had a vine that was coming over to mashed potatoes. We're grateful for mashed potatoes. And it was this, it was just this wonderful um table runner that was created of sort of how, how we are all linked, um, around food and prayers. It was, it was actually an all saints activity, um, that we were doing, but it sort of went into other things. Um, and it, it was really fun to do. I recommend it for your Thanksgiving table. It's a fun, fun act. All ages can do it.
1: Perfect. Anna, we will end with you. Um, Okay. Some way do you encourage interaction between generations or see that in the Bible?
3: Well, so I think, um, I mean, certainly one thing that I do with my students is often start out this class by asking people to share a food memory. So, um, and then to kind of reflect on that. And that's one way of kind of getting into this idea of like, Uh, all of the things that food kind of touches in your subconscious that you're not necessarily aware of. It makes you think of like, oh, people I love or this food that I, you know, it was like, it's a memory about a dish that my mom used to make or that my grandmother made. And then like, you know, or it can be about how like, I have a fraught relationship with food and this is why. And it gets people talking about food in really interesting ways. And so that's that's usually been really helpful. Um, I also, I mean, like, I just, I think it's like, like, um, like there's a reason that church cookbooks end up in like in like the seminary archives right like because like they like these are historical documents there's so much information that is carried in these church cookbooks you know like the choices that you make about what recipe you're going to pick to put in the church cookbook and the same for same for like a soup supper in any way that we that we come together and share something that is special to us with other people like just, or even giving people a chance to tell a story about the recipe before the meal is served is so cool. Um, I don't know, you know, it can be hard to share meals sometimes because people have different food practices and different food values. And I think maybe just inviting conversation about that rather than, um, having that be an obstacle, have it be an opportunity. For people to share, you know, what is it that you think about when you sit down to eat? What are the decisions that you have to make, maybe for health reasons or whatever? But also, like, what are there? What are the things that you choose in your, um, in your life as an eater? That like you think, say something about who you are, and you know, just give people a chance to talk about those things.
1: We have such a wealth of uh, not just information but community building in this webinar. Uh, So I want to remind everyone that these recordings will be available afterwards, either audio or video. Uh, Let's talk just briefly about how you could use these in a congregation. Uh, You could get together the volunteers for whatever food ministries, or the people most likely found in the kitchen, or children and their parents and grandparents, And talk about food together, do some of the practices um, that they have brought up here. Uh, So think about that. And we will talk about that in the last few seconds about any other ideas you might have for how to use this conversation.
0: I have found that people who run meals and pantries are excited to talk to other uh, to hear other ways. Um, their program. So I think that it would be helpful for them. Yeah,
1: That makes me think about um, getting together multiple churches in an area who all do something related to food and having this conversation together. How helpful that would be. Well, join us next month, um, if you dare, December 8th for a spiritual spa during Advent. Uh, we'll be led by Ellie Rocher, uh Shonda Ja, and Heidi Barr as we Uh, experience some wonder and hopefully moments of peace in the midst of a busy season. So thank you so much to each of you um, and each of our
2: attendees for participating.